Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So uh, Senate Democrats are saying that they want to subpoena Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions on this Department of Justice pursuit of, you know, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. The, apparently, so far, all we know is these two Democrats who Trump was aggressively tweeting about these two people during the time that the DOJ was surveilling them. And uh, if they won't testify, they will, um, they could be held in contempt of Congress. Although, you know, when was the last time anybody went to jail for that? Meanwhile, people of praise, this is this little kind of Catholic Christian cult that Amy Coney Barrett was raised in down in Louisiana. They're going through a real crisis. It's all over the front page of the Washington Post. People of praise, a Christian group tied to Justice Amy Coney Barrett, this is the headline faces reckoning over sexual misconduct allegations. Ay, ay, ay. This is one of the problems in cults, right? And the Biden administration is uh, trying to bring back wild areas. That, I thought that was another good one. Darnella Fraser, the young woman, uh, as I recall, she was like 16 or 17 at the time, who had the presence of mind to stand there for the full almost, well, actually her, her clip runs more than nine minutes. Uh, and videotaped the murder of George Floyd. She just won what's essentially an honorary Pulitzer Prize from the Pulitzer Prize group, you know, which is a big deal. And uh, Republicans are saying that maybe the uh, David Bossie is speaking on behalf of them. The Republican National Committee says, uh, I'm not sure we want to do debates anymore. These presidential debates and all these other kind of debates. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like, you know, we don't have any policies to run on. So why should we debate policy? And they used to at least pretend, you know, I mean, they, they used to pretend, right? Reagan would get up there and, well, you know, if you get the rich people a lot of money, they will create new jobs. They'll put that money into factories and it'll trickle down to the average person. They're not even trying this anymore. I mean, it's literally, they're not even trying it anymore. So anyhow, but let's pick up your phone calls here. Arthur in Chicago. Hey, Arthur, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, something's been kind of stuck in the back of my head, including last week. I ended your show last week. We had a good little conversation and a good laugh. Um, now, the 25 states that decided they were going to discontinue the uh, weekly stimulus funds to their unemployed, right. they're going to discontinue those to try to get people back to work. Um, what it's going, I don't, I don't understand what, maybe uh, when Congressman uh, Rokan's back on, he, or some other politician who know, maybe know this, maybe you know it, what is the flow of that money? What's going to happen to that money that they're not giving to their unemployed? You're talking, already- if, if, if I remember the numbers correctly, and I'm doing this from memory, so, you know, fact check me, please. But my recollection is it's $22.1 billion that those, those states are going to give up that that money would have stimulated their economies to that tune and would have helped them, you know, recover faster. But Republicans tend to want poverty in their states. They tend to want their people to be, you know, basically uneducated and uninformed. And you just look at the Republican-controlled states and you see an awful, awful lot of that. And uh, where that money goes, it just stays in the Treasury. It's money that's been appropriated and never spent. 
And that's, in fact, oh. that's when you when you hear about the uh, the negotiations that are going on right now with the Republicans. Mitt Romney was out there last night. We're going to work out a, a you know package here for infrastructure. Um, and, and the Republicans are like, oh, yeah, we can make it a trillion dollars. And, and, and we're going to take 600 billion of that from money that's already been appropriated. This is part of that money. OK, so it was appropriated, but it wasn't given to the states. The states uh, haven't claimed it. Wasn't it. In the, it, was, it wasn't in, OK, it wasn't in, wasn't in the state's coffers right. where they would have to return it to the United States Treasury. That's correct. OK, that's all I, that's all I wanted to know. I was not going to say, OK, they're not going to. Do they have to return it, or are they just going to do what they want to do with that money, since they're not going to give it to the people? Uh, and then one more quick thing, and I'll let you get to the next caller. Um, Louis DeJoy at the post office. I think the whole post office management needs to be restructured. I don't know how that's going to happen. It probably won't. But whose decision was it to take apart and destroy those uh mail processing machines which were worth millions of dollars yeah was it the joy's decision was it trump's was it somebody in between and why haven't that been they've been killed uh, accountable that was the people's property i agree that wasn't their property i agree i had thought that louis DeJoy was responsible for destroying all what was it 600 of them or 800 of them something like that of those Whatever machines. Whatever it was. Yeah. We're talking uh, millions and millions of dollars of oh, people's yeah. property. Hundreds so, of millions of dollars. So why hasn't the federal government sued whoever's decision that was? He implemented it. But why hasn't the federal government sued to get that those machines? Because it's not okay. technically federal property. The U.S. Post, the U.S. Postal Service, the USPS, is a, uh, it's a weird kind of corporation, sort of like Amtrak, that is mm -hmm. not entirely owned by the government but has a relationship with the government. Um, uh, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a weird weird little hybrid, and they don't use any. And and by the way, this has been altered a number of times over the years. But it was I believe it was back in the 70s that Congress passed a law saying that the post office could no longer use any federal money, and Whoa. so they have to be entirely supported by the sale of stamps. And, and then they kneecap they kneecap that with the. Uh that's right. uh, that that law that came out saying that they have to what have have enough money for health care. Yeah, prepay the health care benefits the seventy-five yeah. years in advance. Yeah, and oh, and then that had to be a big boon for the insurance company. I know that was a great boon for the insurance company, wasn't it? Well, they're not. You know, the insurance companies aren't getting that money yet. It's in it's sitting in a trust fund. There's there's something like thirty-five, forty billion dollars just sitting in a trust fund that the post office has. That when they privatize it, will go to FedEx. I was I, I've got a uh, something that I needed to ship to a friend of mine. Who lives in Germany, and so I went on the mm -hmm. Postal Service's website to order some uh, international envelopes and stamps, you know. And the international envelopes, the mailing envelopes, now have the FedEx logo on them. FedEx, the company oh that doesn't goodness. have a union, right? And it's like, oh when the goodness. hell did that happen? I have no idea. But it's like, what? So this is now. My understanding is, I, I and I and I saw this in a news story about I don't know, maybe a month ago, and I did not know this prior to that, and I can't give you any more detail than this, but that story that I read said that a number of those machines have been removed before DeJoy took over. I do not know who preceded him, and, 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 and I probably should, but I, I'm sorry I'm not that much of a scholar on the history of the Postal Service, but mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's apparently not alone on this, and somebody cutting deals with FedEx, and I mean, there's just some, there's some skeezy stuff going on. Uh, with, it, always, it always is with Republicans. It always is. There you go. Always. They're not doing skeezy stuff. They're lying, propaganda, everything. It's, it's always something negative with them, except for people, uh, corporations and rich people. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all enthusiastic about giving tax breaks, but <laughs> outside of that, yes. Arthur, spot on. Thank you very much for the call, and thanks for listening to WCPT. Larry in Elkhart, Kansas. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, I was watching Unfit, the Psychology of Donald Trump last night, mm -hmm. which is brilliant i think and i wanted more so i went to fahrenheit 11.9 and there was a um bit in there about president obama going to flint michigan for a rally to get things done and one of the first thing he did was get a glass of water and he didn't even take a sip out of it he touched his lips that happened twice mm -hmm. and then well would you drink flint water back back in the day I mean, that was when, yeah. when you had the governor of Michigan and the head of the uh, Michigan Public Health Department lying about this, and everybody knew they were lying. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so in, the next thing that happened was a uh, news conference with Snyder, 
And the opposite of anything happened. It was it was shocking how disappointed the people were at the president's response. And nothing happened. I don't know if anything is. I mean, they wanted you know new pipes, et cetera, mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. I don't even know if, if any they of that are. They are. There's a major to... effort underway in Flint, Michigan, to repair to repair those pipes. It has been for a while now. Jennifer Granholm. Like how, uh, how while? You know, put, how a while? I, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I don't know. I I, I haven't lived in Michigan uh, since 1978, and so oh, I just you know I haven't followed it that closely. But I know that okay. this this governor has been very committed to to doing that within the constraints of whatever budget she has to work with. And the budgets, of course, are passed by Republicans in the House and Senate because they control both chambers in Michigan. So it's a tough yeah, one. Brother it's, Rick should be in jail, but oh well. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm with you. And finally, speaking of Germany and where you used to live, for another time, another side of you, I'm really enjoying the prophet's way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's just a kind of a collection of diaries. Uh, from much, much earlier in my life. Uh, Thank you, Larry. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate the call. Our book today is The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy by Anna Clark. This is from the prologue. On a hot day in the summer of 2014, in the Civic Park neighborhood where Pastor R. Sherman McCathern preached in Flint, Michigan, Water rushed out of a couple of fire hydrants. Puddles formed on the dry grass and splashed the skin of the delighted kids who ran through it. But the spray looked strange. The water was coming out dark as coffee for hours, McCatherine remembered. The shock of it caught in his throat. Something is wrong here. Something had been wrong for months. That spring, Flint, under the direction of state officials, turned off the drinking water that it had relied on for nearly 50 years. The city planned to join a new regional system called the Karagnodi Water Authority. And while it waited for the KWA to be built, it began bringing in its water from the Flint River. McCathern didn't pay much attention to the politicking around all this. He had enough to worry about with his busy parish. But after the switch, many of his neighbors grew alarmed at the water that flowed from their kitchen faucets and shower heads. They packed public meetings, wrote questioning letters, and protested at City Hall. They filled clear plastic bottles in their taps to show how the water looked brown or orange and sometimes had particulates floating in it. Showering seemed to be connected with skin rashes and hair loss. The water smelled foul. A sip of it put the taste of a cold metal coin on your tongue. But the authorities said everything was all right and you could drink it, so people did, McCathern said later. Residents were advised to run their faucets for a few minutes before using the water to get a clean flow. But as the months went by, the city plant tinkered with treatment and issued a few boil water advisories. State environmental officials said again and again that there was nothing to worry about. The water was just fine. Whatever their senses told them, whatever the whispers around town, whatever Flint's troubled history with powerful institutions telling them what was best for them, this wasn't actually hard for people like McCathern to believe. Public water systems are one of this country's most heroic accomplishments, a feat so successful that it's almost invisible. By making it a commonplace for clean water to be delivered to homes, businesses, and schools, we have saved untold lives from what today sound like antiquated diseases in a Charles Dickens novel, cholera, dysentery, typhoid fever. Here in Flint, it was instrumental in turning General Motors, founded in 1908 in Vehicle City, as the town was known, into a global economic giant. The advancing underground network of pipes defined the growing city and its metropolitan region, which boasted of being home to one of the strongest middle classes in the entire United States. McCathern is a tall, bald man with a thin mustache and a scratchy rasp in his baritone voice. At the time of the water switch, he had led the non-denominational Joy Tabernacle Church for about 15 years. It was founded in the YMCA in downtown Flint, where it held baptisms in the swimming pool. But in 2009, it made a home in Civic Park, where a Presbyterian church closed after 85 years and gave its sanctuary over to the young and hopeful congregation. By then, Civic Park, one of America's oldest subdivisions, was a desert of deserted, historically significant homes, the pastor said. Built between 1917 and 1919 by General Motors and DuPont and company along curving tree-lined boulevards, the tidy houses were designed for Flint's auto workers and their families. 
that over the years, the neighborhood was blighted by vacancy. Empty two stories with lurching front porches and crumbling roofs sat alongside crisply painted homes where Flint residents, they sometimes call themselves Flintoids or Flintstones, still lived their lives. When the sound of gunshots on the street outside interrupted services, McCatherine gave a nod to the church musicians, urging them to play louder. Some called Joy Tabernacle a thug church, he said, but McCatherine saw the good. The young men filling his pews built a proud society, if not by getting their names on the honor roll, then by tagging their names with spray paint. In the end, people just want to be seen. The ghosts of the past went well beyond Civic Park. Between General Motors and the United Auto Workers, the city had been a flourishing hub for American innovation. There were more than 100 different manufacturing establishments in town. Ten of them employed at least 1,000 people each. And they not only made automobiles, but paints, varnishes, tools, dyes, cotton, textiles, and a wealth of other products. Flint had one of the highest per capita incomes in the entire nation. And despite being severely segregated, it was a magnet for African-American migrants from the South. When Vice President Hubert Humphrey stopped by during the campaign for the 1964 presidential election, he praised Flint for, quote, zooming ahead with unbelievable growth and progress. Workers earned wages that are very good, Humphrey said, and, quote, because of the great labor management program in the community over many years, there has been a constant rise in the standard of living, end quote. Away from the assembly lines and the executive suites, the people of Flint felt that the city just shouldn't be a place to work. It should also be a place to thrive. Charles Stuart Mott, an auto pioneer who became GM's single largest stockholder and three-term mayor, created a nationally renowned community schools program that provided education, skills-building workshops, and social services. The book, The Poison City. Uh, let's see here, Nancy in Chihuahua, Washington. Hey, Nancy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Oh, hey, okay, two things. Why don't the progressive billionaires make a super PAC to A, buy back like Mansion Cinema and any other Democrats that the Koch brothers have bought, and B, to uh, start what you were talking about, more uh, progressive media on radio and, and TV? And I do not know the answer to that question, Nancy. Uh, assuming that you don't mean it rhetorically, if you mean it as a serious question, I have. I mean it's serious. I, I, yeah, I, I've been in the room when when progressive billionaires have been pitched on this stuff, um, you know, uh, and uh, I, there are some very good progressive billionaires who are doing a lot of great stuff, actually, um, but uh, none of them have stepped up to buy major media or national media. There, there are some regional media outlets that are that are controlled by or owned by very wealthy progressives. So. Anyway. Okay, and the other thing is, if uh, uh, corporations are people and money is free speech, right. and the average personal donation is twenty-five bucks, why should they have more free speech than the average person? Because the Supreme Court said so. Because conservatives but on the Supreme Court said so. Can we make a case so. to bring to the Supreme Court asking that? Uh, no, because they've already decided it, number one. And number two, the conservatives on the Supreme Court are not, under any circumstances, going to roll any of that back. Yeah. Well, I figured I mean, it's it was It's going to be a hell of a challenge. It's going to take, yeah, it's going to take uh, legislation at the very least and uh, a, an amendment to this U.S. Constitution excuse me, U.S. Constitution at the most. The uh, For the People Act, for example, has a ban more or less, it regulates, shall we say, dark money. Uh, that will almost certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court, and I'm not sure that it'll survive an appeal to the Supreme Court. But if we buy back Manson and Cinema, they might be able to get rid of the filibuster, and then Biden can pop the court. Yeah, yeah, if we had the resources. I'm, I'm not sure it's that simple. I mean, you know, with Cinema, it may well be. I, I, I'm still scratching my head about her, and I uh, I, you know, I, I came up with this metaphor uh, a week or so ago about, you know, she's just this generation's Roseanne Barr, just, you know, the perpetual attention seeker. Um, but with Joe Manchin, I think that he's dealing with a state where, you know, it's, it's one of the whitest, it's the third whitest state in the United States. It's a small state. It only has a few million people, mostly white people. 
It's got, uh, uh, you know, they they voted for for Trump over over uh, Joe Biden by almost 40 points, and so he's got some complex politics that he's got to be considering. Uh, that is not the case with with uh, Kirsten Cinema. I you know I think that she's just grandstanding. But then I you know we're also you think hearing she ran that, as a spoiler. No, I think th I think that she's doing you know, like she's a Republican that ran as a Democrat just to obstruct. No, I th I think that she's trying to be John John McCain, the guy who occasionally bucked mm -hmm. his own party and everybody thought of him as a maverick. He was a good guy. But, you know, John McCain bucked his own party when his own party was nuts. And uh, Kirsten Sinema is bucking her own party just to be able to say, you know, like with her famous thumbs down on the $15 minimum wage, just to get the publicity. She doesn't, she's not sophisticated enough to understand the difference between John McCain and what she thinks she's trying to do. Uh, that's my guess. I mean, I don't know her, so I don't really know. Nancy, thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, picking up your phone calls. Ron in Chicago. Hey, Ron, what's up? Yes, Tom. Speaking of nuts, uh, could you verify this? Did Lily Gomer say yesterday that land management should stop the earth from spinning so that global warming will disappear? Yes. Uh, words <laughs> to that effect. I, I haven't... I, I, I've only seen the headlines. I haven't done the deep dive because it's like, oh my God, it's Louis Gomert again. Um, I, but, I didn't believe yeah. it. I didn't believe it, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. And also, the Republicans are no, no longer going to use the word criminals. They're going to use the word disruptors. Yeah, for January 6th? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, hey, there is one member of the House of Representatives who got expelled for uh, you know, letting rioters into the Capitol, although it wasn't in D.C., it was here in Oregon, and he got kicked out. His name is Representative Mike Nierman, and he was criminally charged back in April. He basically told these folks, you know, I'll open the door for you, and then he did, and they came in for about an hour chanting, arrest Kate Brown, who's our governor. He got officially kicked out of the House of Representatives on a 59 to one vote. The only one vote to not kick him out was his own vote. So, you know, we can do it in Oregon. I don't know why they can't do it in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's so, a start. Okay, yeah, thank there you. There you go. Okay, thanks a lot. Mark in Chicago says you disagree with me. What, what, do you, what do you disagree with me about, Mark? Well, I, I don't disagree. I just, I wanted your take. As I, I mentioned to the call screener, Tom, that uh, I am a, a, a conservative. I live here in Illinois my entire life. And uh, 
there's a pattern here with some of the Illinois Tom is is an abject failure almost across every metric. And I'd mentioned to the call screener that Chicago has not had a Republican mayor in I, I think since back the thirties. Okay. We have had some Republican governors, but it's been very, very sparse. This is not the only example. You've got California and some other areas that are just, just woefully dysfunctional. California's and doing great, Mark. You want woefully dysfunctional? Look at Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi, where you've got a vaccination rate below 30 and where you've got infant and child mortality rates. We're talking dead people, infant and child mortality rates that are, that are worse than third world countries. I mean, the, the Republican-run states are absolute flaming disasters. The majority of this country's GDP comes out of democratically-run states. The, the, uh, the quality of life is better in democratically-run states. Yes, a lot of our cities have some challenges, but, uh, you know, I, 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 please name one big city run by a Republican that is really doing well right now. I, well, actually, I can name one for you, Salt Lake City, but that's about it. Hey Tom. Yes, sir. Uh, all these, all these states, and I'm not suggesting that there are issues. There's, there's issues across the board. Um, Illinois is, is, they are people are fleeing this state. It, I, I believe, it, 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 a rate higher than any other state in the country. Well, you say people are fleeing, uh, Mark. I, you know, I'm not. Other states don't have issues, but when you've got the kind of corruption, the taxes. And just the overall corruption, it's off the charts. Okay, so what's your it's question, Mark? Well, my question is, don't you see an issue there that when you've got supermajority democratically run, and to think that Illinois is even remotely a functioning uh, state? Um, well, I disagree I with your premise. I think I think Illinois is functioning fairly well, and I think good good a good chunk of Chicago is functioning fairly well. We do, you do have there, as you have in many cities in the United States, as a consequence of, of decades and decades of redlining. You know, the latest thing that we just learned about, you know, in the, or at least I just learned about in the last six months or so, was that when the highways were put in back in the 1950s, they were intentionally run right through the middle of or on the borders of largely black communities. Uh, and what they, the, what they effectively did is they isolated those communities. They created literally created ghettos of, of poverty and and locked people into those communities and you know this was done for the benefit of largely white suburban people and and so you've got cities that are struggling with a legacy of this kind of structural racism uh, I don't have an easy answer for it do you uh, I don't I don't and I told your call screener who I enjoy talking with by the way um, you mentioned, you know, you brought in, in racism, and I, there's another thing that, that, and I told her I would stay on topic, but since you nibbled on it, you nibbled around the edges. Black people had been voting Democratic overwhelmingly for 50 years. Since the 1960s, yeah. Yeah, that, that Tom, again, to me, I'm just observing. I'm just a 59-year-old man that's just observing, and I think the black person has been... Their life and quality of life has been, it's not even close. I mean, I think it has gotten significantly worse over that period of time. And I yeah. think, where's, where's the return on your investment for voting Democratic for 50 years? Well, you've got to consider uh, the challenges that you're up against, Mark. For example, Lyndon Johnson cut poverty in half in the United States and more than in half in the black community in less than a decade with the Great Society programs. When Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981, one of the first things he did in the first six months of his administration was cut housing subsidies in Section 8 housing, which was working quite well at that point in time, cut it in half. He cut it again by another quarter over the next seven years. So in addition to shutting down you know, mental health facilities and homeless shelters that were federally funded, so he basically dumped all that stuff on the cities in order to you know, as a consequence of his massive tax cut, he dropped the top income tax rate from 74% down to 25% and then said, hey, we don't have any money. And, and you know, <laughs> this is what happened. So if you're a city run by a Democrat or a Republican, what do you do? Well, you know what, Tom? You obviously have all the facts and figures. I'm just looking at, at there's been, 
you know, the Clintons were in office, Barack Obama was in office. What I have seen with, with the black community, I think, is absolutely horrendous, horrendous, horrendous on how my observation, they vote Democratic and they get all kinds of promises. And, Tom, the result has been just where I would want you to know, I, Mark, I suspect that your investment there there is a thriving black middle class in Chicago. You're probably unaware of it. You don't hear about it on right wing uh, talk rate, white right wing talk radio. Uh, there's an affluent black community in Chicago. There, there, you know, uh, yes, and, and there's also a poor black community. There's also a poor white community in Chicago. There's a poor Hispanic community in Chicago. And in any of those, you know, poverty does, there's an association between poverty and crime. We, and there's a, an association between homelessness and crime. And we can do something about that. Lyndon Johnson tried to essentially outlaw poverty and homelessness. And he had incredible success over 10 years. And then Reagan came in and dismantled it. Bush continued those policies, Bush the elder. Bill Clinton actually continued those policies. And, and of course, you had Newt Gingrich taking over Congress, the House of Representatives. So, you know, even if Clinton didn't want to continue those policies, there wasn't much he could do. So instead, Clinton came out and said, well, we're going to end welfare as you know it. And he cut everything to no more than five years. And, uh, you know, I, 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 frankly, we have been living in this Reaganomics world, in this neoliberal austerity world since 1981. And we're still there. And if Biden can't get through Congress, you know, four or five trillion dollars worth of spending, which is just a drop in the bucket. You look at the American Society of, of Engineers, which is like has nothing to do with politics. And they're and they're saying, you know, we've got a four or five, six trillion, depending on whose numbers you're using. Um, deficit just on in maintenance on our infrastructure, much less do we want to build, you know, the kind of rail that can support high speed rail like you've got in South Korea or Taiwan or China or all over Europe. Or do you want to have high speed broadband like Chattanooga has done, you know, one gig broadband for everybody in town. And it's it's run by the city. So there's no profit motive. It's less expensive than getting it from from the these for profit companies. Um, if the Republicans can continue to obstruct this and keep us in Reaganomics austerity, then yeah, you're going to have Democratic run areas that do not do not have access to these resources. And they are presiding over cities that don't have a large enough tax base in those areas where there is poverty so, so that they can raise enough money to rebuild their schools and rebuild their infrastructure. You know, not to mention, like I said, that those communities are physically segregated by things like like freeways and, and, and whatnot. It's going to be a real challenge. And, and, and the Republicans are going to continue talking, you know, like, like what you're saying here, essentially. Oh, look at that. They're doing poorly. Well, yeah, we, we set this situation up. Yeah, Mark. That's not, that's not fair. You know, everything is the Republicans' fault. You know, everything, everything is the I will acknowledge, Mark, that everything is not the Republicans' fault. In fact, I thought I just said Bill Clinton did not do anything consequential about this. Um, but, you know, I, anyhow, Mark, thanks. I'm sorry, we're out of time. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I think rather than politicizing this Democratic Republican, really what we need to be looking at are the right-wing billionaires who don't want to pay their taxes who are supporting these conservative politicians. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Monica L. Smith's book, Cities, the First 6,000 Years. This is from Chapter 1, titled, Why Cities? As an archaeologist, my favorite place in Rome is not the Colosseum or the Forum. It's the ancient trash dump of Monte Testacio. Right in the middle of the city, it's a giant mound of broken pottery where the ancient Romans threw away the containers used to ship wine and olive oil all over the Mediterranean. Each of those vessels was about half the height of a person and made of coarse clay that would have roughed up a stevedore's hands. Their odd shape of two handles and a pointy base made them good for packing into a ship's hold or standing upright on a sandy shoreline, but very inconvenient for anything else. After a cargo of them arrived at its destination on the hustling shores of the Tiber at the very heart of the Roman world, a few were reused and a few were recycled. Over the centuries, the pile of discards grew, with the result that one of the famous hills of Rome is actually not a hill at all, but of human construction, a landfill, essentially. 
Today, Monte Testacio is topped by trendy nightclubs and has been endlessly mined for construction, but there are still the remains of 25 million ancient containers poking up from the vegetation of the hillside. Now consider a very different metropolis. My favorite part of Tokyo, the backside of the Shukiji fish market, that part that tourists don't visit. Shukiji is enormous and the passageways are crowded with plastic buckets and barrels teeming with every kind of creature that you can imagine from the briny deep. Crabs attempt to crawl their way out of baskets, little fish are piled up in ice buckets, and great slabs of tuna glisten under the Klieg lights. The market is open to everyone with chefs and restaurant owners jostling with homemakers for a clearer view of the day's catch. It's a world without friendly chit-chat, punctuated by the dangerous darting movements of souped-up forklifts that dodge their way in and out of the buildings and heap up their discards out back. Behind the market is an enormous dump of plastic foam shipping boxes used to transport the globally sourced tuna, squid, and shrimp from each morning's auctions. The pile of containers is taller than a two-story building and so large that it is continually cleared by bulldozer. Some of the cartons are trampled and broken in the process with bits and pieces that spill further into the passageway. In between the endless runs of machinery, merchants and their helpers come to pick through the heaps of box fragments, sorting through the pile to find ones that aren't too broken. They carry them off to repack with fish or whatever else they're selling. Ancient Rome and modern Tokyo are literally a world apart, but if we stand back and look at them as cities, they have identical characteristics. In addition to markets and trash, there are multi-story buildings, long streets, sewer pipes, water mains, public squares, and a downtown zone of financial institutions and government offices. There are a thousand varieties of sounds and smells competing with the weather and daylight that frame the skyline in the built environment. There are crowds of people, rich, poor, young, old, female, gay, straight, trans, able, disabled, employed, students, jobless residents, and visitors. Production and consumption opportunities are scaled up in cities to provide not only more things, but also more things per person, a completely ironic abundance given that urban residences tend to be much smaller than their rural counterparts. In the midst of so much abundance, the only solution is to cycle through possessions faster, turning everything into trash. It's the act of discard that provides the most telling evidence of urban activity, whether it's a broken potsherd from 2,000 years ago or a fragment of a plastic crate that was shattered this morning. Once you start to look for the concentrated detrius of your own urban life, it's everywhere. In the trash cans that bear the proud logo of the downtown business improvement district, in the dumpster parked outside a building that signals the renovation taking place inside, in the garbage truck that obstructs your commute, in the legions of sanitation workers employed to sweep the streets and subways and haul out the accumulations of discards. Trash has a familiar rhythm and concentration. Holidays bring a hangover of extra full trash bins. Parades and festivals and summer weekends in the park are witnessed through their aftermath of overflowing trash containers. Whether directly or by proxy, an urban obsession with trash is everywhere, and once you start to look, you won't be able to stop seeing it. Congratulations. You're an archaeologist. Move your gaze upward or to the side, you might notice it's not just trash that silently tells the story of urban life. Your own metropolis, even if it's new, has many traces that reveal its history before you moved through its streets. Maybe it's a bolt hole in the sidewalk where a telephone booth used to stand, or an out-of-use railroad track now embedded in the asphalt of the city street. Maybe it's a building that has been updated once or twice, resulting in the pastiche of a Victorian facade with mirrored glass windows or a modernist concrete structure fronted by flowers and cheerful painted windowsills. And maybe it's a newly cut ditch in the street where you can see the layered pavements of prior years right up to the present. Buildings and streets and parks serve as a living map of variable time, a collection of structures that all exist simultaneously, whether they were constructed a millennium ago, in your grandparents' time, or just last week. Your growing archaeological insights serve you well when looking not only at modern cities, but also at the ancient cities that are found by the hundreds on nearly every continent. Such famous ones such as Rome to not-so-famous ones with romantic names like Tikal, Telbrock, and Expian. The book Cities, the First 6,000 Years by Monica L. Smith. And welcome back, Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Well, 
I just think we we really we're, the Democrats are a little disingenuous if we if we can't pass the Stock Act. Obama wanted that you can't use insider trading, and right. there's a lot of, a lot of them on both sides doing that. So, I mean, if we really want to see genuine about stopping corruption, I think that's very corrupt. Knowing that you know Microsoft's going to go up because uh, they just got a twenty five billion dollar. Deal for the internet for uh, defense for headsets, mm-hmm. and then you invest ten million in it. That's a pretty good. Uh, I don't. I don't find that very legal. I, it, it is legal though. Uh, and uh, is is what you're talking, Jeff? I'm not sure I understand what you're talking about. Are, are you talking about the fact that members of Congress can basically trade stock on insider information? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that needs and, and to be cleaned up. And it's both sides of the aisle do it. And, you know, I don't think Actually, when, when uh, oh, what was his name? Brian Baird, right, Sean? Yeah, when Brian Baird was uh, representing the community right across the river from us, Vancouver, Washington, in Congress, and I was doing this show from the studios of KPOJ. This was like 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Brian Baird came into my studio one day and said, oh, my God, I got to tell you what I saw. He was visiting a Republican colleague and they were working together on a piece of legislation. And this guy had three people in his office, as I recall, who were doing day trading on computers in their office. And they were doing it based on inside information that this Republican member of Congress had. And so Brian Baird went to Nancy Pelosi and said, did you know that this is going on? And she's like, no, I had no idea what it's going on. What the, what the hell are you talking about? And so they went after this guy. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. Brian uh, mentioned it on the air, as I recall. And uh, they, they went after this guy, and it turned out his response was, hey, Paul Ryan, they're doing it out of Paul Ryan's office. They're doing it, uh, you know, they're doing it out of all, you know, uh, it, this is a common thing in the Republican Party. And the Democratic caucus was like, what? You know, I mean, just shocked. And that led to Brian Baird pa- introducing legislation to try to stop that, which was blocked by, by Paul Ryan. So uh, I don't well, know if they ever cleaned the, the, this thing the up or not. You just mentioned it may not be partisan any longer if this is going on. No, but no, it certainly it's not. started no, it's not. out this way. Yeah, but but, but what's you your know, point, they, Jeff? Put, well, I mean, how how genuine? I mean, yeah, of course, Trump's he's a traitor. But if if we can't clean up the own house on both sides of the aisle, and there's a lot of dinosaurs in there and the Democrats that are doing the same thing, Tom. And I you don't know think who so. I'm talking about. I really don't think so, Jeff. Can I say one thing? You may and, say and I hate things. saying it. Uh, well, she, um, the one who just inve- invested ten million dollars in Microsoft while she was on the committee that gave twenty-five billion to Microsoft was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi doesn't manage her own money; it's all in a blind trust. So, if her trust put money into Microsoft, you know that that may, which is entirely reasonable and possible. Uh, that's a whole different thing than these than these How other members different? of Congress who are managing their own money and are doing day trading. Yeah, but I think it's it's on both sides. So, yeah, I but I really don't think it's on both sides, Jeff. I really don't. And and this both sidesism again. I'll I'll remind you. This was the principal message that the Russian trolls were promoting on Facebook in 2016 to try to discourage Democrats from voting. Find a Democrat who's doing day trading in Congress. I don't think you can. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And uh, Tim in Burlington, Vermont, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. I think one of the things that we're missing is that we've had this society where white male landowners could get away with murder from the very beginning of time here in the United States, or, you know, pre-United States. Sure. And, and we have a culture of that. Yeah. And everything we're kind of talking about today that I've been hearing is stems from that, that mindset. Yeah, I think you could argue racialized patriarchy came out of the agricultural revolution, and the earliest example of it is uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, what, 7,000 years ago in Samaria. Um, but yes, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, you know, you were talking about the redlining, and I know when I was living in Sacramento and I grew up in California and, and Reagan ruined, you know, so much of, you know, the, the society in California mm-hmm. uh, back in the 70s when he was governor. And he did the same thing to the rest of our country when he became president. So I just wanted to make that point is that, you know, I think we have this systemic racism of white males um, dominating and getting away with murder. You know why um, your property taxes pay for your schools? <laughs> Probably that same reason. It, it is because exactly that same reason, and it goes back to the 19-teens, and uh, as communities started, you know, uh, public schools started in the United States in the 1880s, and by the 19-teens, they were pretty much spreading across the country. They started in Boston, actually. Uh, Horace Mann was the, the big evangelist for them. And uh, Horace Mann, among others, was saying that communities should pay for their own schools with their own taxes. Now, why was that? Because poor black communities would then have crappy schools, and white yeah. wealthy communities could have really cool schools, and this is a great way of enforcing this racial order, essentially. You know, back to the, to the conservative caller who was talking about, whoa, what about Chicago? Well, you know, hey, when, you, when so much of what you do in a community has to be financed with property taxes rather than statewide taxes or federal taxes, you are going to have these kinds of inequalities that have been with us for uh, centuries, literally. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Continue. It rigidifies them. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. Tim, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's, it's, it's great to hear from you. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind? All right. Um, I, I need to qualify what I'm about to say because I, I, I agree with you more than anybody that's on TV or radio. What? Uh, but, some, you, but sometimes you really get me my, uh, my, my motor running. Okay. That conservative caller who uh, sat back and, and made a, a blatant ball-faced lie, I'll just call it what it is. He claims that uh, minorities do not benefit from Democrats when Democrats are in the White House. Bill Clinton saw 23 million jobs created when he was president. Donald Trump lost 3 million jobs. And I've heard it said many times with, when it comes to black people, last hired, first fired. Sure. And, and that's, by the way, that's not only true of black people, that's also true generally of poor people, regardless of race. Yeah. And, and so when you have a situation where the Democrats can only hold the White House for eight years at a time, and then you get some uh, fascist-loving Republican uh, somehow cheats his way to get into the White House and gives us a recession. So, so now you have these minorities who are going out in there. They've saved all their money, uh, their life savings, and they put it down on the house. First fired, last hired. When that Republican gives them a, a recession, who then loses the house first? You're absolutely right. And this has been happening. I'm I'm 69 years old now, and and I'm I'm older than that that clown. And and excuse me, I'm trying to contain myself. Mm. But I'm older than that clown who said he's been observing things, just like I've been observing things all my life. I can see the difference between what what's been happening with uh, between the minorities and white people, just as clear as day. 
Why can't he? Well, there's this, there is this mythology that is spread on right-wing radio and right-wing television, Fox News, across the right-wing media, that everybody is only responsible for themselves, essentially, and that if black communities are struggling, it's because of, it's because of black communities. And the fact of the matter is the black communities have been under the thumb of white people forever in this state, in this country, I mean, literally, uh, and, and continue to be. And except that what happens when those Republicans give us a recession, gives all of America a recession, yeah. what does the government do? They, they step in, and this last time, it's, it's one of the most egregious things that they've ever done. They stepped into the stock market and gave white people, the, the stock owners, reparations for the damage that Donald Trump did to the economy. You're right, and they did that it in 2000. That, didn't go, black, I'm that sorry. did not go to black and, and uh, Asian and... Um, and Hispanic community. That went to white America. You're that absolutely was, right. Was, you are absolutely right. And by the way, the same thing happened in 2009, you know, after George Bush crashed the economy. Larry, I'm with you. Larry, I got to run, but thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There's a lot on our plate. Let's pick up some phone calls here. Angelo in Chicago. Hey, Angelo, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thank you so much. And may I please a shout-out to Kenyatta. Years and years ago on my very first call, he was the conversation just before me, and your conversation with himself really calmed me down, and I had a, a conversation that wasn't overridden by stage fright. Yeah, he's a brilliant man. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to let folks have an informational moment of how to watch, how to listen to the show. When I had free speech TV, I always had a pad and paper and I always took notes. Now that I don't have free speech, I am not uh, hands-free as I'm listening to you here, but always take notes because if you're using Tom's show as infotainment, well, good on you for wanting to listen to something worthwhile, but take notes and be- Well, let me make it easier for you. Sue Nethercutt, who's you know on our staff, she listens to the show and she finds yeah. every single article or topic that I talk about and finds cool. links to stories that are background documentation and she plugs it into a daily newsletter that we send out five days a week. It's absolutely free. Oh, I didn't know. There are some, some little ads that run down the side, which is how we pay for it, but they're not intrusive and it's not, you know, it's not in your face or anything. And, uh, you know, we've got quite a mailing list. And so it, it's kind of, you know, Sue's Daily Stack is really worth checking out. You, just go to TomHartman.com and uh, it's easy enough to find. But if you just sit on the website for, I think, about a minute, a, uh, a, a pop-up will come up that says, you know, fill in your email address here to subscribe. So, anyhow. Brilliant solution. Yeah, it does Well, work. the reason that I'm calling is that there's knuckleheads in Indiana Duh. <laughs> and uh, what they're what they're doing is uh, pushing back on the mask mandate, and they think that they're being patriotic citizens. Mm-hmm. And they're they're in the the state lawmakers huddle. You know, the, I don't know what that's called downtown there, but the thing that they're doing, I would say, can be characterized as faux intellectualism. And one of the ways that to have a faux intellectual conversation is easiest to have is when you're not in possession of your faculties. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are three things that were created that were noted on the return of vets from Korea where the, the guys that were getting captured and worked over to sign confessions and et cetera, mm-hmm. The mental condition of these guys was listed as a disability, and then that went to a dependency, and then that went to a dread. Right. So you've got the crisis of being a prisoner of war, and they're working you over to exhaustion, and that creates the debility. And then as they're terrorizing you harder, you go into survival, and you get stockholmed which isn't a term that showed up until the 1970s when that particular thing was was able to be seen. And then there's always the the constant condition dread. So they called that the three Ds. And they developed, as a response to that, SEER training, survival, evade, resist, escape, 
SEER, S-E-R-E. And then they deconstructed SEER training and they used it at Gitmo on detainees. So they reverse engineered it, basically. Right, right. So what you really need to know here is that we are dealing with monsters as a taproot back to and complicit idiots who are willing to, in a a zero-sum game, cynical version of of worldview. Yeah, I totally get it, Rich. Let me give you another data point real quick. Congress, I don't know if this is Pelosi's decision or who, but Congress has decided that if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask anymore. There are over 100 Republicans in the House of Representatives who refuse to acknowledge whether they've been vaccinated or not. It's, it's bizarre. Rich, thanks for the call. I mean, just think about that for a minute. A hundred Republicans who refuse to say whether, I'm guessing most of them have been vaccinated because they're not idiots, or maybe they are. I don't know. The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being from Chapter One, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost 17% of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain, or visceral brain, called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one-day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long-term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, In order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time, today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, Most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain slash mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious, a process Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information's still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then. 
and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states, such as those involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality, then, when we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is Walking Your Blues Away. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.